Section 22 of The Lane That Had No Turning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. The Lane That Had No Turning and Other Tales Concerning the People of Pontiac by Gilbert Parker. The Man That Died at Alma. The man who died at Alma had a Kilkenny brogue that you could not cut with a knife. But he was called Kilquahannity, a name as Scottish as MacGregor. Kilquahannity was a retired soldier, on pension, and Pontiac was a place of peace and poverty. The only gentry were the curé, the advocate, and the young seigneur, but of the three the only one with a private income was the young seigneur. What should such a common man as Kilquahannity do with a private income? It seemed almost suspicious, instead of creditable, to the minds of the simple folk at Pontiac, for they were French, and poor, and laborious, and Kilquahannity drew his pension from the headquarters of the English government, which they only knew by legends wafted to them over great tracts of country from the city of Quebec. When Kilquahannity first came with his wife, it was without introductions from anywhere, unlike everybody else in Pontiac, whose family history could be instantly reduced to an exact record by the curé. He had a smattering of French, which he turned off with oily brusqueness. He was not closed-mouthed. He talked freely of events in his past life, and he told some really wonderful tales of his experience in the British Army. He was no braggart, however, and his one great story, which gave him the nickname by which he was called at Pontiac, was told far more in a spirit of laughter at himself than in praise of his own part in the incident. The first time he told the story was in the house of Medallion, the auctioneer. "'Oh, the night it was,' said Kilquahannity, after a pause blowing a cloud of tobacco smoke in the air. "'The night it was, me darlings. Bither cowled in that Rusian country, though but late summer, and nothing to ate but a lump of bread, no bigger than a dicky-bird's skull. Nothing to drink but water. Turrible, turrible, and for clothes to wear.' "'Mother of Moses, that was a bad day for clothes. "'We got between no bare quilts that night. "'No stockin' had I insoid me boots. "'No shirt had I, but a hair's quilt sewed on to me. "'No heart I had insoid me body. "'Nothing at all but duty and standin' to orders me buys. "'Says Sergeant Major Kilpatrick to me. "'Kilquahannity,' says he. "'There's bither places than River Alma to live by,' says he. "'Faith, and by the leafy I wish I was this moment. "'Liffy's in old Ireland, Frenchies. "'But, Kilquahannity, says he, "'Faith, and it's the leffy we'll never see again, "'and put that in your pipe and smoke it. "'And through for him. "'But that night, oh, that night, "'ivory bone in me body was aching. And sure me heart was aching too, for the poor boys that were fighting ard and getting little for it. Bither cowled it was, ah, bither cowled, and the boys dropping down, dropping, 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 with the Rusian bullets in them. Kilquahannity, says Sergeant Major Kilpatrick to me, it's this standin' still, while we be dropping, dropping, that girds the soul avier. Ow. Oh. The sight it was, the sight it was. The boys of the regiment, standin', 
shoulder to shoulder, and the faces of em blue with powder, and red with blood, and the bits of eyes dropping round me, like twigs of an old tree in a storm. Just a cry, and a bit of a gurgle through the teeth, and devil the one of them would see the lifey side any more. The Rusians are charging, shouts Sergeant Major Kilpatrick. The Rusians are charging, here they come. Standing beside me was a bit of a lump of a by, as foin a lad as ever stood in the boots of me regiment. Ah, the look of his face was the look of the dead. The Rusians are coming, they're charging, says Sergeant Major Kilpatrick, and the bit of a by that had nothing to eat all day throws down his gun and turns round to run. Eighteen years old he was, only eighteen. Just a straight slip of a lad from Alahide. Hold on, Teddy, says I. Hold on. Howl your face your mother if you turn your back on the enemy of your country. The bai looks at me in the eyes long enough to wink three times, picks up his gun, and stood like a rock he did, till the Rusians charged us, roared on us, and I saw me slip of a bai go down under the sabre of a damned Cossack. Mother, I heard him say. Mother. And that's all I heard him say. And the mother waiting away, aft there by the life he soid. Ah, wurra, wurra. The bys go down to battle, and the mothers wait at home. Some of the bys come back, but the most of them stay where the battle laves them. Wurra, wurra. Many's the by went down that day by Alma River, and never come back. There I was, standin', when hell broke loose on the bays of me regiment. And devil the one of me knows if I killed the Rusian that day or not. But Sergeant Major Kilpatrick, a bit of a liar was the Sergeant Major, says he. It was tin ye killed, Kilquahanity. He says to me, the night that I left the regiment for ever. And all the bays standin' round, and liftin' glasses and sayin', Kilquahanity, Kilquahanity, Kilquahanity as if it was sugar and honey in their mouths. Oh, the sound of it. Kilquahanity, says he. It was tin ye killed. But all bys. The sergeant major was an awful liar. If he could be doing anybody any good by lying, sure he would be lying all the time. But it's little I know how many I killed, for I was killed meself that day. A Russian sabre claved the shoulder and neck of me. And down I went, and over me trampled a squadron of Russian harasses, and I stopped thinking. Oh, so easy, so easy. I slipped away of the fight. Their shrieking and roaring kept dwindling and dwindling, and I dropped all into a foin schleip. So quiet, so easy. And I thought that slip bay of the lad from the life he soid was holding me hand and saying, Mother, mother, and we both went asleep. And the bays of the regiment, when Alma was over, they said to each other, the bays, they said, Kilquahanity's dead, and the trenches was dug, and all we foin dead boys was laid in long rows, like candles in the trenches. And I was laid in among them, and Sergeant Major Kilpatrick standing there and looking at me and saying, Poor bay, poor bay. But when they threw another man on tap of me, I waked up out of that beautiful shlape and gave him a kick. 
you're not polite,' says I to myself. "'Sure, I couldn't spake. There was no strength in me. And they threw another man on, and I kicked again. And the sergeant major, he sees it, and shouts out, "'Kill Quahonity's legs a-kickin,' says he. And they pulled off the two poor devils that had been thrown, o me. And the sergeant major lifts me head, and he says, "'You're not killed, kill Quahonity,' says he. Divil a word could I spake, but I winked at him, and Captain Masham, standing by, whisked out a flask. Put that Petunie's teeth, says he. When I got it there, thrust me for not letting it go. And the sergeant major says to me, I have hopes of you, Kilquahanity, when you do be drinking like that. And a foine, thirsty, healthy corpse I am, says I. A dozen hands stretched out to give Kilquahanity a drink for even the best story of Pontiac could not have told his tale so well. Yet the success achieved by Kilquahanity at such moments was discounted through long months of mingled suspicion and doubtful tolerance. Although both he and his wife were Catholics, so they said, and so it seemed, Kilquahanity never went to confession or took the blessed sacrament. The curé spoke to Kilquahanity's wife about it, and she said she could do nothing with her husband. Her tongue once loosed, she spoke freely, and what she said was little to the credit of Kilquahanity. Not that she could urge any horrible things against him, but she railed at minor faults till the curé dismissed her with some good advice upon wives rehearsing their husbands' faults, even to the parish priest. Mrs. Kilquahanity could not get the curé to listen to her, but she was more successful elsewhere. One day she came to get Kilquahanity's pension, which was sent every three months through Monsieur Garon, the advocate. After she had handed over the receipt prepared beforehand by Kilquahanity, she replied to Monsieur Garon's inquiry concerning her husband, in these words, Mr. Garon, sir, such a man it is, enough to break the heart of any woman. And the temper of him, Mr. Garon, the temper of him that's awful, awful. No consideration, and that ugly-hearted, got win a soldier by. The things he does. My, my, the things he does. She threw up her hands with an air of distraction. Well, and what does he do, madame? asked the advocate simply. And what he says, too. The awful of it. And the bad sour heart in him. What's he lying in his bed for now? And the new year coming on, when we ought to be praising God and enjoying each other's company in this blessed world? What's he lying between the quilts now for, but by token of the bad heart in him? It's a wicked cowled he has, and how did he come by it? I'll tell ye, Mr. Garon. So wild was he, yesterday it was a week, so black mad with something I'd said to him, and something that slipped from me hand at his head, that he turns his back on me, throws open the door, steps out into the snow, and standing there alone, he curses the wide world. Oh, dear Mr. Garon, he cursed the wide world, standing there in the snow. God forgive the black heart of him, standing out there cursing the wide world. The advocate looked at the sergeant's wife musingly, the fingers of his hands tapping together, but he did not speak. He was becoming wiser, all in a moment, as to the ways of women. And now he's in bed, the strap and blasphemer, for the cowl he got standing there in the snow, cursing the wide world. 
Ah, Mr. Garon, pity a poor woman that has to live with a loik so that. The advocate did not speak. He turned his face away and looked out of the window, where his eyes could see the little house on the hill, which today had the Union Jack flying in honor of some battle or some victory, dear to Kilquahanity's heart. It looked peaceful enough, the little house lying there in the waste of snow, banked up with earth, and sheltered on the northwest by a little grove of pines. At last Monsieur Garon rose, and lifting himself up and down on his toes, as if about to deliver a legal opinion, he coughed slightly, and then said in a dry little voice, "'Madame, I shall have the pleasure in calling on your husband. You have not seen the matter in the true light. Madame, I bid you good day.' That night the advocate, true to his promise, called on Sergeant Kilquahanity. Kilquahanity was alone in the house. His wife had gone to the village for the little chemist. She had been roused at last to the serious nature of Kilquahanity's illness. Mr. Garon knocked. There was no answer. He knocked again more loudly, and still no answer. He opened the door and entered into a clean, warm living room, so hot that the heat came to him in waves, buffeting his face. Dining, sitting, and drawing-room, it was also a sort of winter kitchen, and side by side with relics of Kilquahanity's soldier life were clean, bright tins, black saucepans, strings of dried fruit, and well-cured hams. Certainly the place had an air of home. It spoke for the absent termagant. Monsieur Garon looked round and saw a half-opened door, through which presently came a voice speaking in a labored whisper. The advocate knocked gently at the door. "'May I come in, sergeant?' he asked, and entered. There was no light in the room, but the fire in the kitchen stove threw a glow over the bed where the sick man lay. The big hands of the soldier moved restlessly on the quilt. "'Aye, it's the coin of ye,' said Kilquahanity with difficulty, out of the half-shadows. The advocate took one burning hand in both of his, held it for a moment, and pressed it two or three times. He did not know what to say. "'We must have a light,' said he at last, and taking a candle from the shelf he lighted it at the stove and came into the bedroom again. This time he was startled. Even in this short illness— Kilquahanity's flesh had dropped away from him, leaving him but a bundle of bones, on which the skin quivered with fever. Every word the sick man tried to speak cut his chest like a knife, and his eyes half started from his head with the agony of it. The advocate's heart sank within him, for he saw that a life was hanging in the balance. Not knowing what to do, he tucked in the bedclothes gently. "'I do be thinkin,' said the strained, whispering voice. I do be thinkin' I could smoke. The advocate looked round the room, saw the pipe on the window, and cutting some tobacco from a plug, he tenderly filled the old black corn-cob. Then he put the stem in Kilquahanity's mouth and held the candle to the bowl. Kilquahanity smiled, drew a long breath, and blew out a cloud of thick smoke. For a moment he puffed vigorously. Then, all at once, the pleasure of it seemed to die away, and presently the bowl dropped down on his chin. Monsieur Garon lifted it away. Kilquahanity did not speak, but kept saying something over and over again to himself, looking beyond Monsieur Garon abstractedly. At that moment the front door of the house opened, and presently a shrill voice came through the door. Schmokin! Schmokin! Are you, Kilquahanity? 
As soon as me back's turned, it's playin' the fool. She stopped short, seeing the advocate. Beggin' your pardon, Mr. Garon, she said. I thought it was only Kilquahanity here, and he with no more sense than a babby. Kilquahanity's eyes closed, and he buried one side of his head in the pillow, so that her shrill voice should not pierce his ears. The little chemist'll be comin' in a minute. Dear Mr. Garon, said the wife presently, and she began to fuss with the bedclothes, and to be nervously and uselessly busy. Ah, oh, leave them alone, darlin', whispered Kilquahanity, tossing. Her officiousness seemed to hurt him more than the pain in his chest. Monsieur Garon did not wait for the little chemist to arrive, but after pressing the sergeant's hand, he left the house and went straight to the house of the curé and told him in what condition was the black sheep of his flock. When Monsieur Garon returned to his own home, he found a visitor in his library. It was a woman, and between forty and fifty years of age, who rose slowly to her feet as the advocate entered, and, without preliminaries, put into his hand a document. "'That is who I am,' she said. "'Mary Muddock that was, Mary Kilquahanity that is.' The advocate held in his hands the marriage lines of Matthew Kilquahanity of the parish of Malahide, and Mary Muddock of the parish of St. Giles, London. The advocate was completely taken aback. He blew nervously through his pale fingers, raised himself up and down on his toes, and grew pale through suppressed excitement. He examined the certificate carefully, though from the first he had no doubt of its accuracy and correctness. Well, said the woman, with a hard look in her face and a hard note in her voice. Well. The advocate looked at her musingly for a moment. All at once there had been unfolded to him Kilquahanity's story. In his younger days Kilquahanity had married this woman with a face of tin and a heart of leather. It needed no confession from Kilquahanity's own lips to explain by what hard paths he had come to the reckless hour when, at Blackpool, he had left her forever, as he thought. In the flush of his criminal freedom he had married again, with the woman who shared his home on the little hillside, behind the parish church, she believing him a widower. Mary Muddock, with the stupidity of her class, had never gone to the right quarters to discover his whereabouts until a year before this day when she stood in the advocate's library. At last, through the war office, she had found the whereabouts of her missing Matthew. She had gathered her little savings together and, after due preparation, had sailed away to Canada to find the soldier boy whom she had never given anything but bad hours in all the days of his life with her. Well, said the woman, you're a lawyer. Have you nothing to say? You pay his pension. Next time you'll pay it to me. I'll teach him to leave me and my kid and go off with an Irish cook. The advocate looked her steadily in the eyes, and then delivered the strongest blow that was possible from the opposite side of the case. Madam, said he, Madam, I regret to inform you that Matthew Kilquahanity is dying. Dying, is he, said the woman, with a sudden change of voice and manner, but her whine did not ring true. The poor darlin', and only that Irish hag to care for him. Has he made a will? she added eagerly. Kilquahanity had made no will, and the little house on the hillside and all that he had belonged to this woman who had spoiled the first part of his life and had now come to spoil the last part. An hour later, the advocate, the curé, 
and the two women stood in the chief room of the little house on the hillside. The door was shut between the two rooms, and the little chemist was with Kilquahanity. The curé's hand was on the arm of the first wife, and the advocate's upon the arm of the second. The two women were glaring eye to eye, having just finished as fine a torrent of abuse of each other and of Kilquahanity as can be imagined. Kilquahanity himself, with the sorrow of death upon him, though he knew it not, had listened to the brawl, his chickens come home to roost at last. The first Mrs. Kilquahanity had sworn, with an oath that took no account of the curé's presence, that not a stick nor stone, nor a rag nor a penny, should that Irish slattern have of Matthew Kilquahanity's. The curé and the advocate had quieted them at last, and the curé spoke sternly now to both women. "'In the presence of death,' said he, "'have done with your sinful clatter. Stop quarrelling over a dying man. Let him go in peace. Let him go in peace. If I hear one word more,' he added sternly, "'I will turn you both out of the house into the night. I will have the man die in peace.' Opening the door of the bedroom, the curé went in and shut the door, bolting it quietly behind him. The little chemist sat by the bedside, and Kilquahanity lay as still as a babe upon the bed. His eyes were half-closed, for the little chemist had given him an opiate to quiet the terrible pain. The curé saw that the end was near. He touched Kilquahanity's arm. "'My son,' he said, "'look up.' "'You have sinned. You must confess your sins and repent.' Kilquahanity looked at him with dazed but half-smiling eyes. "'Are they gone? Are the women gone?' The curé nodded his head. Kilquahanity's eyes closed and opened again. "'They're gone, then. Oh, the foin of it, the foin of it,' he whispered. "'So quiet, so aisy, so quiet. Faith, I'll just be schleppin. I'll be schleppin now.' His eyes closed, but the curé touched his arm again. "'My son,' said he, "'look up. Do you thoroughly and earnestly repent of your sins?' His eyes opened again. "'Yes, father. Oh, yes. There's been a dale o' noise. There's been a dale o' noise in the world, father,' said he. "'Oh, so quiet. So quiet now. I do be schleppin.' A smile crossed his face. Oh, the foin of it. I do be schleppin. Schleppin. And he fell into a noiseless sleep. End of section 22